Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, friends. This is your host, Brian James. I'd just like to take a few moments before today's episode to thank everyone that's purchased my latest yoga series, Shamanic Yoga. The response has been really positive, and I'm glad to hear that it's helping folks deepen their yoga practice and explore shamanic journeying with nothing more than a drum to guide them. One of my intentions with sharing this approach is to help others find ways to awaken their inner shaman and access the healing and transformational potential of their own imagination. If you're interested in purchasing the course, you can use code MEDICINEPATH or click the link in the show description for 15% off the entire series, which includes four different lengths of yoga practice with drum journey and two practices that invoke the energies of the sun and moon through movement, breath, and chanting with drum and rattle. Purchasing one of my yoga courses or books is a great way to support the work I'm doing, but you can also take a moment to give the podcast a good review on iTunes or share it with your friends. I've noticed that no one's left a review for a while, so if you haven't already, please do so. It'll only take a minute, and it really helps with the algorithms. You might also go over to YouTube and subscribe to the Medicine Path channel, where I post full episodes and video clips. And finally, if you're able to support the podcast on an ongoing basis, please consider becoming a Patreon member, where you can hear episodes before they're released to the public and gain access to the full podcast archives and a wealth of yoga practice resources. Membership starts at just $2 a month. For more information, head over to patreon.com forward slash medicine path. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with psychedelic integration expert, Dr. Ryan Westrom on the medicine path. 
Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Ryan Westrom. He's a nationally recognized psychedelic integration expert. And for more than 15 years, his primary focus has been working with individuals and groups facilitating experiential therapy and integrating psychedelic journeys into healing and personal transformation. Ryan is a registered integration therapist for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and is the co-author of the book, The Psychedelics Integration Handbook, which is the primary focus of what we'll be talking about today. Hey, Ryan, thanks uh, for joining me and welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Brian, it's a pleasure. I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, me too. Can you start just by letting people know where in the world you are right now? Yeah, um, I am a clinician. I'm a transpersonal psychologist and a licensed marriage family therapist out of Minneapolis, Minnesota in the U.S. and have been practicing here locally for the last seven years and clinically throughout the United States for the last 15 and really make my home with COVID now and the Zoom world um, across the United States and some parts of the world, helping integrate psychedelic experiences. Great. So you're in uh, Minneapolis. How's the how's the mood in Minneapolis these days? We're just coming up on a year anniversary of what happened to George Floyd and everything that happened afterwards. So just curious, what are things like where you're at now? It's a really, really um, compassionate question. And I thank you for that. Um, My office was literally three blocks away from where that happened. So we had quite, quite, quite the trauma. And culturally speaking, it really has um, been the epicenter of a lot of wonderful transformation under this tragedy. And very, very still kind of putting back the pieces. Post offices are still, they were burned down. Lots of buildings, lots of communities, lots of business establishments um, no longer exist. Hmm. So really a lot of recognition and stark reminders of the dissonance we're living in right now, which leads a lot of the conversations I've been having both in my office with psychedelics as well as cultural and just trauma that we all are living under in our, in our society. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I guess you're, um, you're seeing this topic come up more for people in your clinical work. Um, are you finding that people are, um, 
more open to looking at working with psychedelics based on the kind of the extent of the trauma that the collective is experiencing right now? I have noticed that. And Brian, when you bring that up around the collective, it has what I would call an and. And what I mean by that, it's not or. We're not working with cultural, archetypal or individual. Sure. We're working with them quite often simultaneously. And I'm seeing a significant parallel process of both the archetypes, the collective, as well as how it's being superimposed and reflected in their internal story. So a lot of family constellation work, a lot of generational trauma is coming out in integration work, as well as what's happening in the here and now. And it's quite a new revelation from my vantage point to see this confluence or the intermingling of both the archetype and the individual healing. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, before we get too deep into the transformational journey, just um, to give a little background on yourself and how you came to this work, you know, the, the name of this podcast is The Medicine Path. And I see that as the individual's journey to healing, growth and transformation and how it's unique for all of us. So I'm always curious, you know, when speaking with someone like you who you know, it's kind of doing similar work to what I do. I'm curious how you got on that path and when that happened for you. So maybe the first question is, when did you first get interested in psychedelics? Oh, fantastic. I, I appreciate the softness and levity. We go in psychedelics, we're quick to go into the archetype. So thanks for bringing us back into the here and now. It's always good, Brian. Um, honestly, it was very early on. I was a young teenager, almost 13, when I first found psychedelics through some older friends. And synchronistically, um, I'm aging myself. It was very close to pre-internet. And so I had books fall in my lap. And the three books that fell in my lap was The LSD Therapy by Stanislav Grof, Interpretations of Dreams by Sigmund Freud, and then The Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. And so this is the smorgasbord of really how I've made the medicine path. Hmm. All along the while, having this pretty outlandish experience with psilocybin um, being fostered by 16 year olds. Grateful that I had the safe set and setting of kind of intuition and listening and reading some of these archetypes and Graf and Wolf. And so I'm a real smorgasbord and smattering of the grateful dead of psychology work and the interpretations of dreams and kind of just started to follow like what was the next breadcrumb. And it's always funny that way. It wasn't like, oh, I have this revelation. I'm going to be a psychologist that works with psychedelics. But it was like, I'm going to feel into this. This feels right. This feels intuitively inclined. Mm. Yeah, well, aging myself too. Uh, my first experiences were in the 90s. So definitely pre-internet, not a lot of information out there. And psychedelics were very much a part of the the counterculture or the alternative culture uh, that I was very much a part of being a, a musician and into the the beat poets and uh, really anything kind of out of the ordinary, um, anything out of my kind of blue collar suburban upbringing was interesting to me. And so psychedelics were a doorway into that whole world. 
Yeah, so what I'm hearing from you that was very similar is it was a draw, but yet there was enough taboo that actually brought me into it and yet kept it kind of like, okay, I, I, it's not as fluid as it is today. It was like still this kind of feeling into what is appropriate and yet still curious and yet, you know, you still heard stories of if you did LSD three times, you were going to be clinically insane. So, you know, you didn't have Reddit to clear up your, you know, folk tales that people would tell you. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it feels a lot like just um, kind of stumbling around in the dark, trying to find my way. And, and through that, having some really traumatic experiences, but then also some experiences where I had that, you know, taste of the the larger possibilities for me or the taste of freedom from the suffering that I was experiencing. So enough to kind of keep me curious and keep me going. But you hit on something that, that uh, resonates with me in that because it was part of the counterculture, that was probably one of the things that drew me into it. And if it was as mainstream as it is now, I might not have been so interested. I would have been maybe going down a, another path, you know? Yeah, it's cool enough to be interested, but it wasn't like, oh, and if it becomes too like, and then, and it's, I'm making fun of myself, but there was definitely this give and take of, okay, there's enough unknown to it to, to really seek out, to keep exploring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what were some of the, the pivotal first experiences that you had that let you know that there was um, something more to be explored here? I, um, there was a pinnacle moment in one of my first psilocybin experiences, Brian, where I internally remember being out in public as the young teenage and irreverent person I was recognized I need to bring this into a higher level of sanctity and spirit and was asked to bring myself home. So someone brought me home. I had a sober friend bring me back to my home. And I remember spending the entire experience or what I would now reference as a session, uh, going in and out of going inside the womb and outside the womb by covering myself in blankets. And I'm young, so I had no, there was no cartography. And yet you're sitting there experiencing the divine all the while going, okay, I'm still here on planet earth. And I knew in that instant, and so grateful for you referencing this, what changed was the idea of, okay, this isn't just a toy. This isn't as you going to a festival and seeing lights and trees melt. This is much more of a divine spiritual openness that, I ended up just taking on for what now is my entire career. Hmm. And so was it those first experiences that led you to become interested in psychotherapy and psychology? Yeah. Um, the idea of psychotherapy and psychology, I um, vividly was asked from, you know, the school counselor, what do you want? And I, I had the inner mixing of philosophy and psychology, and it was really catalyst by psychedelic work. So the whole entire time I'm playing division one hockey at a university while I'm still exploring my consciousness. And I knew at every given moment, I had these wonderful experiences with psychedelics that there was something more to it. And it continued to be endorsed by places like MAPS, 
by my mentors like Stan Groff and James Fathoman that I was like, okay, I'm on and I love the path you're talking about because there was always these guideposts right when I thought I was potentially losing it or becoming too irreverent or too disconnected. There was clinical work or scientific work or somebody reassuring me. And I think that if there's anything for your listeners to remember through these paths is finding those Kirins or guideposts that reassure you that this is my intuitive journey and this is my way. Yeah. So how did you get introduced to, um, like you talked about finding Stan Groff's book early on, but did you actually meet him in person and, and uh, do a mentorship or, or learn from him in person? Yeah, so I'm um, also certified in holotropic breathwork, which he started in the early ages of Esalen, where when psychedelics were in its prohibition, he created um, a breathwork model that now is very, very, very important in the path of consciousness. And I ended up taking his program in the early 2000s where I became a facilitator. And so I, I got an intimate chance at his workshops to participate, listen to his lectures, and then also build a intimate relationship with what he was doing in the past with his LSD psychotherapy and all his theories around that. Mm. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that for you, psychedelics and psychology, psychotherapy, they were always integrated from the very beginning. It's not, uh, you know, a lot of people now, there's a lot of therapists out there who are getting interested in the therapeutic use of psychedelics who are just starting to explore maybe at, at midlife after having a career as a psychotherapist, they're starting to explore the potentials of, of uh, psychedelics themselves. But for you, it sounds like from the very beginning that these were, they were hand in hand. Yeah, they were hand in hand. And Brian, when I, it was, it was by happenstance, it was intuitively like I kept thinking I needed somewhere to process. So originally it was through notebooks and then it was through um, my master's work. I was doing holotropic breath work in conjunction with psychotherapy and recognizing the embodied experience that breath work or yoga or meditation or these very evocative body experiences were doing that I wanted language. And for somebody that gets to know me long enough, they'll learn I'm not short with language and I need to verbally process too. Mm. And so for me, a large aspect was intersecting talk therapy with these embodied experiences. And they're not limited to that. There's many different realms, but that was kind of the invitation I had towards both the integration of psychedelic work, the integration of body work and saying, hey, processing through CBT, cognitive behavioral, dialectical, all is valuable. There's mm. limits, but there's definitely value in it. Yeah. So um, on your path of becoming a psychotherapist, what were the psychological schools that called to you the most, that seemed most congruent with your psychedelic experiences and the work of Stan Groff. Did you, um, were you learning transpersonal psychology or were there other schools that you're drawing on? Yeah. Um, so transpersonal psychology came to me a little later. My path um, really unfolded with a lot of concrete sequential experience. I spent much of my 
early psychology work, actually in child psychology and working with perception. So watching infants and children and working with nonverbal cues of children on the spectrum. And then I graduated into communication patterns, nonverbal communication patterns. And I, but you have to remember all along the while, I had this kind of what I would call secret because there wasn't this transparency that we live in today. And uh, so it was as if, okay, I have this framework, but it wasn't as articulated in the open culture. And so really honing my craft of learning cognitive behavioral therapy, understanding Marshall Linehan's dialectical behavioral therapy, narrative therapy, and all these different. So I'm very um, eclectic in that regard. And then I was like, oh, transpersonal psychology, what, where has this been? And that's what led me to the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in California and going along my PhD program. Mm. What did you do your dissertation on? That's a great question. Um, when I ended up doing my dissertation, I ended up looking at psychology and psychedelics, but made a beeline in finding healing and wholeness within sexuality. So I'm also a clinical sex therapist. So the intersection of psychedelics and sex, trauma, sexual healing, sexual authenticity was really percolating in me. So my dissertation is actually seeking wholeness through sexual transformation, sexual authenticity. And that was found through the work of psychedelics that I did. So it sounds quite kind of evocative, but really it's the intersection of sexual awareness and non-ordinary states of consciousness. Well, that's really interesting. And that I think could maybe be a whole nother podcast actually, because. Uh... Yeah, yeah, we could definitely revisit because I think that's def a nuance that people don't know about me and is deeply woven together. So much of psychedelic work actually is integrating our authenticity, be it sexually or our fluidity within our sexual realm. So thank you for asking. Well, yeah, um, sex is such a big part of life. I mean, <laughs> it's the origin of life. Right. And it's such a part of how we um, identify ourselves and express ourselves and connect with ourselves and others. So that's a huge topic. And uh, yeah, maybe one that we could follow up on, actually. But uh, I would like to keep this conversation focused in on the psychedelic integration. But let's um, let's put a pin in that maybe for a future conversation. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. So I was going to ask, um, you know, following up on your education, what are some of the modalities that you work with primarily in your current clinical practice? With um, the prohibition and the legality of psychedelics, what I do a lot of now is hypnosis. So I use a lot of classical hypnosis in the training I've done under that. I also work with breath work. So I invite um, clients into my office and practice, and we do holotropic breathwork and different breathwork models. I engage in classical talk therapy, doing much of what I would um, call in our culture today, we say family constellation work and reconciling, maybe reparenting. And much of that is a great, um, what I would say, cultivator for reconciling our psychedelic experiences. And all those are really wonderful beds of information to leap into what they've learned in their psychedelic work. 
what they've learned in their experiences. Yeah, well, that's interesting that you have that um, experiential component to your therapy practice. Um, I know for me personally, that's been a big part of my own journey of healing and growth is having those kind of experiences, what um, Jung or uh, Otto would call the the experience of the numinous, uh, right. you know, getting in touch with the great mystery. Um, you know, I think Jung even went so far as to say that that encounter with the numinous was the therapy, that it was so integral to uh, the process of individuation or, or transformation. Um, so it's been important for me to also try to help facilitate those kind of experiences for people in the work I do. So um, I think that's really interesting that you're that you're offering the experience and then um, giving it as part of a larger context. That's accurate. And the reason I do that um, is because I do also believe in the space between our psychedelic experiences. And I'm um, an, a large aspect of the incubation in between and using those as launching pads for bigger psychedelic experiences. So much of the time I'm actually processing with clients, hey, let's still do experiential exercises that we can embody. And yet let's not assume that we're gonna need a large dose of psychedelics or push into that realm of microdosing. Let's find the purity. I do have a history and a memory of that we are spirit bodies that are coming in with purity. So I, as much as I love plant medicines and as much as I work with them, I also don't wanna be leaning into them with so much necessity that they're gonna be my answer. I wanna really help foster with my clients this embodied experience with their breath, with their body, with their thoughts, and reconcile that prior to going, hey, I need five grams or I need this large experience. Yeah, well, it's great to hear from you because that, that's my view too. I think, um, you know, we always have had this capacity to get in touch with the great mystery um, on the natch, you know, just completely right. naturally, maybe through some kind of uh, techniques or, or or ritual structures or, or whatever. But we've got the kind of uh, that capability or capacity within us already. And I, I love to uh, to show that to people, you know, to kind of wake up their visionary capacity within themselves as they are now. Um, so that's great to hear. And I love that uh, because one of my concerns actually is that with all of the attention being placed on psychedelics these days is um, I think some people, what I'm hearing is that that is the path uh, or that is the only way to go or that is gives us the most profound or biggest experiences. And I just haven't found that to be true. Um, Nor have I. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, that um, when we have these experiences on the natch, they're actually a lot easier to integrate because there doesn't seem to be a, um, a kind of third element in there or, um, you know, presenting us with ideas and symbols and things that are a little harder for us to to integrate. Does that yeah. make sense? It makes 100 percent sense. And Brian, I would even ask in this conversation to take it further is sometimes there's this overwhelming obligation that it was supposed to have done something for us. Right. And so when I hear you say that, I, I endorse the same concerns that let's work on our body. One, it builds empowerment and strength. Mm -hmm. 
And two, sometimes when people come into my office and say, you know, I'm going to travel down to Peru or I'm going to go to Costa Rica for this large ayahuasca ceremony, there's a lot of pressure put on that experience to either transform them, give them light into their trauma or make some sort of transitional space for them. And when I hear that, I really kind of take on the proactive approach of cautionary expectations. Like, what are your expectations and can we foster something without the medicine to use it as a complement, not Mm -hmm. the the necessity? So thank you for that that like-minded idea. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's really great um, that you're addressing that kind of heavy expectation that people can put on this experience. Because if someone comes out of that, you know, they spent thousands of dollars to go to Peru to go on this uh, 12-day ayahuasca retreat. They've drank ayahuasca, you know, five or six times. You know, maybe they've done San Pedro or Ambo or other things. You know, they've got like all the heavy-duty medicines and they come back and they're feeling more depressed than ever or dis- more disconnected than ever. You know, like it didn't work for me. Like, and then my fear is that people then internalize that and say like, well, what the hell is wrong with me? Like I'm totally, um, I'm beyond help. I think there's a real danger of that. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. And yeah, I, I can't help then say being gentle with each other, being gentle with their expectations. And again, that brings into integration as an intentional setting too, right? So mm-hmm. a part of integration as we're speaking about it is not to forget what the purpose is, what the preparation is, what's our ideas around it? What are we doing to really do it for a motivational factor? And when I hear people say, oh, you know, I have depression that's so painful that it's suicidal or that I feel suicidal, then there's this element of, uh, is this the last straw? Are they worried about this? If it doesn't work, then what? Right. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I've ever heard that um, tempering of expectations as part of the the mindset going into it. But I think that's a really great um, thing to bring uh, bring into it, you know, just the tempering of expectations before you go into it. That's really, um, that's really valuable and wise. So thanks for that. You're welcome. And thank you. So we're talking about integration. Um, you know, I'm always curious to hear from other practitioners and facilitators, uh, how they define, uh, or describe psychedelic integration. So I wonder if you could, um, offer your thoughts on that. Yeah, the the simple answer that I like to give people is taking two things and integrating them. I always imagine in a metaphorical sense, two rivers converging. And oftentimes they get blended and I wanna help support them in recognizing that there are meaningful times that it's blended and there's other times where we wanna really compartmentalize. So integration for me is like a twofold path that we both have to compartmentalize subject matters and also let them become fluid. And it sounds kind of nebulous, but when it's practice, my biggest component is integrating practicality and really laying the foundation of what I would call the skin encapsulated ego as Alan Watts would say, and then exploring the luminous, the spiritual, And those take, I think, two different roles. They can be a confluence, but they also need some time 
to be separated. Mm. So let me know if I'm hearing you right. So that um, there's a kind of a distinction between the experience as it can affect um, like behavioral change and the experience that can open us up to the greater mystery or the, the spiritual or the transcendent. Yeah, thank you for that translation. Um, spending a little bit too much time in psychedelics sometimes often gives me a little bit of a vague answer. Uh, so taking two things, it, we often that can be overconsuming, right? If we're we're faced with these luminous ideas and we're thinking, oh, the obvious is how do we bring it back to reality, right? right? And that's my invitation. Is sometimes. Some of these things are so beyond us that we're like, okay, I'd rather just not work on that. But my invitation is we have this wonderful experience of living on planet Earth. What are we going to do with it? And how maybe just taking pieces of it. And my biggest, again, as you said, tempering expectations is we don't have to integrate all of our experience. Maybe it's pieces of it. Maybe we table some. And so for me, it's all about bringing it back to practicality mm. and evoking that sense of reassurance that they can digest it, they can work with it. Yeah. And I, what I'm hearing is that uh, sometimes those experiences like the far out transcendent uh, experiences, um, it may be doing them a disservice to try to like bring them down into the mundane material world. So why not just let them be these amazing transcendent experiences of the numinous and let the mystery stay a mystery? Right. Yeah. I use a term called psychointegrative. So there's a term rather than it becoming so dissociative, right? Often when I hear them become mystery, they feel like you alluded to a little while ago is maybe they're not catching something or they feel self-deprecating and they don't feel smart enough or integrated enough or evolved enough. And immediately that's a recipe for disaster. So what the psychedelic can do is take it in piecemeal, take it in substance that we can digest. That's at whatever level they feel aligned with and then build upon it. There's always gonna be room for more understanding. And I actually just spoke to a client that said, you know, the experiences I had six months ago, I'm still interweaving into my life. So don't be hasty to think that we're gonna integrate overnight. Oh, please don't. And yeah. um, also just to let you know, um, I last week I had a conversation with Dr. James Hollis who's a really esteemed Jungian analyst and he's written close to 20 books. He's been practicing as an analyst for over 40 years. He's in his eighties now. And, um, you know, he let me know that the work is never done. And, right. uh, you know, Jung said very much the same thing that that process of becoming oneself individuation is a lifelong project that is never finished. And he, yeah, and Brian, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, he left the question open as to whether it's even finished after we die, which I love. So there's that I, element of the mystery, too. Isn't that the truth? And uh, ending the conversation always with, did I attain something, is really a tragedy. So I love that he said that. I love that you said that. Because if we're always trying to gain some sort of completion within, it becomes really tragic because... There's so much mystery. There's so much opportunity. 
And speaking about that, it's larger version of incompletion at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, just it, it touches back to what you said about tempering expectation of the experience. Like also temper your expectation of becoming a fully integrated individual um, in this lifetime, you know, like I love uh, like James Hillman. <laughs> I was listening to a lecture of his once and uh, somebody in the audience asked him, um, like, how do we know when uh, when integration is complete or when we've uh, become fully individuated or something? And, you know, again, he's like in his 70s at that point, very uh, well seasoned. He's kind of seen it all. He says, if you ever meet a fully individualized person, send me a postcard. You know, <laughs> <laughs> So much truth to it. Because, yeah, he hadn't seen one. So, like, temper your expectations, too, around the integration process and making meaning of every part of your experience. I think that's really wise as well. Thank you. Um, something uh, I've been thinking about um, is, you know, how psychedelics have been a part of many different cultures for thousands of years. But um, the idea of psychedelic integration or the necessity of psychedelic integration is a pretty recent thing. So I'm curious what you think, why, why we need to focus on psychedelic integration now? What makes us different from our ancestors who use these substances? The idea of integration, I think, has become vogue due to I think our culture making sure it's really focused on harm reduction. And those two words seem very synonymous. I don't believe that our ancestors or indigenous cultures don't integrate. They integrate and they just don't need to talk about it. So to make fun of us in the westernized world, we're always making sure we think we started something new. I don't believe we did. We're just fostering it through books and ideas of kind of articulating why we're doing it. And why I say that is because I do believe we're still trying to approach it differently than say the 50s or 60s with harm reduction. A large aspect of my career is integrating because people are still uncertain with what they're doing in their life. And what I mean by that is they're still evoking conversations in the world, they're still moving. And not to say people in the indigenous world and all these other cultures don't, but we're very conscious of liability and we're conscious of being aware of, you know, trying to legalize these medicines. So why I think it's so important to integrate now is it's showing a service of like ruling out what's appropriate, what's not. That's just the legal aspect of things that I always want to be conscious of. But on the spiritual component, I think we're seekers. I think that hasn't left us. It's just being evoked in a different manner. Mm. And I'm seeing that by the a culmination of different ceremonies and the way we're inviting ceremony in and the way we're inviting therapy in is we're really evoking beautiful cultural relationship with the medicine and trying to integrate it, trying to talk with it and not think we're higher than it, right? We're not higher than the plants. We're not higher than the compounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess when I, when I think about that uh, question myself, 
Um, like, like you said, like, I think you touched on it. Um, but maybe I just want to like draw it out a little more how in the past, the psychedelic integration was integrated into the culture already. So they didn't right. have to think about specific practices to make sense of that experience. That experience was within a cultural context uh, that was one understood by everyone. And it was a part of the development of the individual, like as an, an initiatory process or uh, as part of their path as a visionary or healer. So it was, um, it was already integrated into the culture. So there's no need for any additional integration uh, processes. And, and because our culture has changed so much and we've lost a lot of ceremony and ritual that used um, psychedelic substances or plant medicines that we then have to figure out, okay, well, how can I then give this a context in, in my life at this time in this society and culture that uh, helps me derive some meaning from it and receive some benefit, you know? Yeah. And Brian, what you just said really landed for me too is, Oftentimes, integration is becoming more of a justification. Well, I did this. I need a justification for it. And I really try to evoke the opposite of that. We don't have many times. It doesn't have to kind of go to that problem solution. And I think that what you're saying around um, ancient cultures and cultures that really integrated into their way of living, they don't have to have this problem solution focus or this outcome driven plan. And that's one of the biggest kind of catch 22s I talk a lot about in my practices. We don't have to be attaining anything here. We're working to integrate it. That doesn't, as you were alluding to a moment ago, solve anything or find something or finish something off. And that's, I think one of the biggest misnomers of integration is it doesn't have to amount to any attainment. It's clarity towards wholeness as Stan would say, but that doesn't mean that we've attained anything. Hmm. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, um, like Jung would say that, um, it's not so much that we solve our problems. It's more that we outgrow them by expanding our consciousness through experience and expanding our um, capabilities. So developing as a, as a person. Um, and so there's something in what you said that I feel resonates with that idea that um, we're not looking at solving specific problems, but we're looking to, to grow so that we can, um, so that we can uh, understand ourselves more wholly, but also um, put experiences in their proper um, perspective or uh, as a, as a, like there's something I'm thinking about, like the ratio of our, like our difficult experience versus the totality of our life potentially. And that the problems become smaller as we expand our awareness. Does that make sense? Does that ring? A I love it. I know. I really um, connect with it and the idea of being able to really take it. I think, um, with food for thought or you know not too much weight that's also a complement towards integration is managing what we want it to be and what it's teaching us and oftentimes i always say and it's pretty well known that people say 
the medicines teach you what you need, not necessarily what you want. So a large aspect of integration too is saying, okay, I got something I wasn't asking for. And now what do I do with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, Okay. So we talked about like psychedelic integration becoming a more in vogue thing. It's like, as the interest in psychedelics comes up, then this whole uh, industry kind of uh, develops around that work. And so psychedelic integration providers are popping up everywhere. People are scrambling to do trainings so that they can be in on it. You know, this new wave in psychotherapy, it's like the latest trend that's rolling through our culture. Um, And I'm often a little uh, dismayed by the kind of superficiality of some of the stuff I see uh, put out there by psychedelic integration providers. Um, I think a lot of it seems to me just to be like tips that could be considered general advice for overall wellness and psycho-spiritual development. Um, So what are some of the practices that you think are more specifically suited to integrating psychedelic experiences rather than just for general like wellness and development? Well, first of all, I want to really respect what you're saying, because I agree. I think right now we're living in a vacuum of exploit and excess of integration. And so everything is becoming integrated, right? Um, That's a catch word. And so with that being said, you're exactly right. A lot of it could be used as wholeness. It could be used for yoga practice or your meditation experience or your relationship with your partner. So with that being said, to answer your question of what is differentiated with psychedelic work versus any other holistic practice, I lean directly on that experience. What did that experience tell you? being open to being an empathetic listener and a seeker of understanding of the innate experience. So I think what separates psychedelic integration from any other holistic integration or psychology experience is we have to look at the time you were in that world, right? The time that you were exploring the consciousness under an ayahuasca ceremony or psilocybin ceremony. It would be very similar, Brian, to you integrating a trip to Costa Rica is much different than integrating a trip to Iceland. They're both traveled experiences, but they're going to foster and invite in different information for you. So to answer that, you have to know what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. If you're doing yoga, you're going to integrate something in your body differently than potentially a psychedelic experience that's giving you an uncanny experience of potentially something that you are unaware of. Mm. Many people have said that to me specifically with magnificent ceremonies that are interchanged with ayahuasca. They have this condensed experience that's undescribable. Well, first we have to align what they experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Like, yeah, what that makes me think of is, uh, I guess one of the ways I think about integration. So first of all, I I think of integration as like a lifelong process, like I alluded to before, and that psychedelics can be a useful tool or experience in that larger lifelong process. 
Um, so that's the way I like to contextualize the use of psychedelics, because I don't think people really um, experience a lot of transformation or positive change unless it's part of a larger um, lifestyle or part of a, a bigger process that involves a whole bunch of other supportive things. Um, but one of the things like that I think about, well, how do I actually integrate that ayahuasca experience in the jungle into my life when I come back home to British Columbia? Um, you know, the world is so much different here. It's outside of a retreat context. I'm, I'm not in the jungle. I'm thankful to be in a rainforest, so I still get some of that uh, nature healing. Uh, but I think about like, how can I integrate that? How can I bring that home with me so that uh, it continues to like work on me? Um, and the way I think about it sometimes is that what, what I want to do is evoke something of that experience in, in my daily life. So I want to be like connected to the lessons that I learned, to the experience of like magic and mystery that has been so healing for me. So I think about like, well, how can I like uh, evoke something of that experience through um, all of my senses? So I've got some some art from different places that I've been. Uh, burning Palo Santo brings me back to ceremony, listening to music from some of the healers that I worked with or, or learning some of the songs and singing them myself. Bring me back to those experiences in a really, in a really deeply felt, uh, visceral kind of way. Like it touches something deeply in me. Um, so there's a resonance with that actual experience where I had like the great insight or, the, you know, the great healing or whatever. Um, so that to me is like one way that I approach it is like, just how can we evoke something of that experience when we, when we go back home and kind of keep the healing going or keep the, the magic alive? Um, yeah, without a doubt. And what I hear you saying, and from my vantage point is teaching people to incrementally do it. So don't take it all in one, right? So when you talk about the five senses, I super appreciate that. When you talk about the smells versus the music versus making it accessible, but also making it incremental. So we're not trying. I think one of the disservices we do as integration therapists, too, is creating this like ritual that you have to do this to integrate something. And my invitation as I'm listening to you is piecemealing it, as you said, piecemealing it together incrementally. And if it calls to you or if you're drawn to that use it, but don't think it's an obligation because at the end of the day, if you think it's an obligation, um, you're going to be stuck. You're going to be thinking, Oh, I should have done this. Or I have this formulated pattern of this is what healthy integration looks like. I often will say, make it your own. Mm -hmm. So, so if Palo Santo serves you today, take that in. If yeah. you're drawn to being vegetarian, take that in, but don't feel it's obligatory. So I love what you're saying, but mm. mindfully, incrementally play it out. I also think just to kind of go deeper is challenge yourself to do something that's out of your comfort zone. So I being a left-handed, very right brain thinker would evoke art or dance. And one of my mentors once said, do different mm -hmm. because we're, we limit our integration by what we know. Mm -hmm. And so I invite the listener and people exploring psychedelic integration to challenge their comfort zones. So dance if you're not used to dancing. 
journal if you're more inclined to do art and start to practice both, you know, bilateral brain movements and that kind of idea of comfort, pushing your comfort zone. Mm. Oh, I think that's such great advice because uh, often, you know, the psychedelic experience or going to a ceremony does exactly that for people. And, and that's what I think helps them expand their perception of who they are and like what's possible for their life and, you know, what the world is really about. Um, so that's great. So continue to, uh, to kind of push your boundaries little by little, poco a poco uh, yeah. in your daily life. So when you're at the retreat and you are more disinhibited uh, and you were able to like dance around with everybody and, and like kind of be the new age hippie freak and in a party, you really love that. We'll see if you can like bring that into your life and maybe like just doing it in your living room by yourself at first, but then maybe finding like an ecstatic dance party when you feel more comfortable or if you feel more comfortable. But I, I, I love that. That's a good, uh, it's a good prompt is to, to try doing differently. Yeah, without a doubt. And it ends up bringing in some spontaneous catalysts of healing. You get that spontaneous kind of just ignition of oh this that fluid flow or that as you alluded to when you talked about the music or the palo santo of that real intrinsic memory of the experience you're like oh that's what that was like that embody again embodying it and aligning it as much as possible Hmm. Okay, so we're similar in that we're both kind of <laughs> more intuitive types, dreamy types, right? So for you, what did doing differently look like? Great question. So because I am extremely kind of loose and kind of I would go into drumming or I would bring out my djembe or I would do the art and kind of do collaging, um, I immediately remember practicing stillness, practicing contemplation of articulating. And that was a large aspect to, to digress into the book a little bit of the healing component for me to do something that was, you know, very scary and daunting to write, to articulate my language on paper, because I was so accustomed to making it very existential and very nebulous. And I'll do an art project that will represent or a mandala that would represent. And so by putting it into a articulate word really always pushes my envelope of integration. And for me, it was like, I can beat the shit out of a drum all day long, but to be able to formulate what I learned or what I'm processing really up the ante for, again for me because I am so right brain thinking yeah well that was my experience too but um I never thought about it in that context before of how uh writing my little book which was very much like kind of like an integration journal that I wanted to share with the world, um, how that was such a different kind of process for me. Like, I think I'm really good at writing a social media post or like an 800 word blog post uh, where I can like touch into an idea, but I'm not kind of forced to string together a bunch of ideas or to more deeply articulate something that's really hard for me to express verbally. Uh, I'm less a verbal person and more of a, um, a body expressionist or a musician and that kind of thing. Right. So to try and like really nail down the language in my book, which is 112 small pages and yours is 
almost 500 large pages. Like, yeah, I get it. And that, that resonates with my experience too. It was one of the most challenging things I've ever done, but I think it was um, really good for me developmentally because it was so different from what I'm, I'm comfortable with and what I generally go to first, which is like you, the the music or the art making or the kind of free expression of the feeling, right? Rather than yeah, trying right. to like articulate it and get really careful about the words. Yeah, and that articulation really resonates for me to say, okay, am I facing it too? Mm-hmm. Because some of the real abstract things we never have to identify as oh, I just, you know, made this moon sun collage. But then when I actually verbalize it, I'm actually identifying with my inner relationship with feminine and masculine if I have to start then putting words to it. And that's another aspect of my endorsement for talk therapy is great. I can do all the moon and sun collages that I fucking want. But if I really want to face my demon or my shadow around those elements, sometimes words are necessary sometimes processing it with a third party listener or healer is beneficial because they'll call you on it. They'll go, what do you think the moon and sun mean? And I'm like, freaking out because I have to identify and face that interpersonal relationship with masculine and feminine energy maybe. Yeah. And then like noticing if there's resistance to articulating that, like, why do I got to make it mean anything, man? Just like, right, 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 right. right. I love it. Let me be in my, my moony mode. (laughs) Exactly. So well said. I think what you said is, uh, is like something worth to highlight as well. Like, um, after I'd go off on my um, my spiritual pilgrimages to go do plant medicines elsewhere. The first thing I did upon coming home was to give my wife the whole download. And um, that was really helpful uh, to me to have somebody to express that verbally with. It was somehow um, bringing something of the experience back into my life by um, m- m- manifesting it through through the words and my articulation, kind of helping me sort out, well, how do I even start to talk about this? But I think like uh, there is a difference when you're working uh, with someone like an integration coach or therapist in that you're going to get those prompting questions to look a little deeper that you might not get from your friend or your lover who's just going to be like, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Right. Right. Which is which is lovely. And that it helps you feel like, okay, it's like it's actually okay to express these kind of ideas out loud and all that. So there's something healing about that. But you might not get those prompts that help you look a little deeper. It's like, why does this image uh, keep coming back up for you? And like, what is it really pointing toward? Like, like you said, what what's in your shadow around this particular um, image or archetype or whatever? It's quite beautifully said. And I think that removing those blinders are always an invitation towards wholeness and a really humble experience. I think humility comes in when we speak about integration too. Yeah, well, I think it's a good quality to to shoot for. Um, this brings me to something, another question I wanted to pose to you. Um, so <laughs> what are some of the pitfalls that uh, people should watch out for following um, a big psychedelic experience? What are the, some of the things you see in your clinic that are you would consider pitfalls? Well, that 
in and of itself brings up a lot of fear in people. I think control and power is one of the largest ones. I think from my vantage point as both a witness in guided ceremony at some level and integrating with people, I see this deep desire to just hold on to say their intention, their motivational factors, and there's no wiggle room. And so they're like, I'm going to hold on to this and I'm going to own it. And it really removes them from the ability to witness and get information delivered to them. Yeah. The second one that comes up for me too is well, what just, we spoke about. Well, go ahead. Just please. before you go to that, just um, thinking about taking it to like a next step so that um, I, I see that a lot too, that like inability to really let go. And so someone's holding on to that intentional mantra, like it's a, it's a, it's a life preserver or something. Right. And they're not allowed to, they're not allowing themselves to like, let go into the ocean. Um, so when I think about that kind of level of control, and I often kind of ironically see this a lot with people who identify as like Buddhist meditators, you know, they really want to like lock down the experience and like stay in one pointed concentration or something. Right. And they see that as like an achievement if they've made it through the whole ceremony, holding it down. Right. Um, what, what that brings up for me and like where I would go with a client would be like what I guess what the control to me is like pointing toward is possibly some kind of fear around, uh, overwhelmment. hundred percent agree with you. hundred percent agree with you. And then it questions more of the safe set and setting that they've asked for what they want to. And that overwhelming, this is what are they afraid of? Like you said, I love that you said the Buddhist monk. I can just picture it now. It's just trying to hold it down. And at the four hour and 25 minute mark, they're like, yeah, I survived. <laughs> yeah, I did it. Right. Like, right. And, and that's what happens. I mean, I, and not to make it comical, but that does happen is they're like, <gasps> and then I'm like, well, what, what do you integrate? I, I'm just glad I'm through it. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, or it's a proof of some kind of uh, attainment in their meditative practice. And not only right? Like I met that challenge and I defeated, yeah. you know, I defeated yeah. ayahuasca by like. <laughs> and, you know, and we could digress, but I, I beg that's the new renaissance too, is this taking Terrence McKenna's five gram heroic dose and turning it mm -hmm. into 10. And I'm like. What are you trying to attain? I think power and control, as you're speaking about pitfalls, Brian, is also managing the ego. Like, so what you can say now you went to do your ayahuasca ceremony or you and I'm not being blasphemous to it. We all do it. I mean, I'll throw myself under the bus. Sometimes I'm like, I just want to recreationally do it. But at the same time, we have to know what what it is to surrender and explore. When is it appropriate to surrender and when is it explore, exploring the limits of our, our ego? Mm -hmm. Now you're gonna say, uh, you're gonna talk about um, kind of a second pitfall that you see. The, the expectations of, um, and one of the things that really lately has concerned me is coming in as it being a last ditch effort. And we peripherally talked about it earlier, but to really put emphasis on it, Brian, is individuals that are seeing psychedelic medicine as the end all be all proverbial silver bullet. 
and they walk in and they're talking about it. They're saying, hey, I've just signed up to go down south. I've got this amazing experience to be in protocols or certain um, research. And they're, they're just assuming, they're making a radical assumption that because they're going to take these medicines, that things are going to change. And one of the largest pitfalls to exacerbate this conversation more is you're becoming understanding that trauma doesn't leave you. And oftentimes people are like, well, they're wanting it if they're doing ketamine infusions or anything, they're wanting depression to snap and go away. Mm -hmm. They're wanting the post-traumatic stress of their trauma to go away. And to be the grim reaper of saying, um, I understand your struggles. I empathize and compassion with you, but please know that you're going to learn to live with it. You're going to learn to have more awareness around it, appreciate it potentially, but I can't guarantee or even consider telling you that that trauma is going to go away or that memory is going to go away or you're going to be healed and depression. We don't want to cut emotional wheels out or emotional parts of the wheel out or memories of who you, that's developed who you are. Yeah. And yeah. We don't want to eradicate, we don't want to eradicate fear or anxiety because they actually help you survive. Right. You're well said. Yeah. I think if anyone suggests to you that you're going to be free of any of your suffering after coming to their retreat or doing that particular medicine, whatever, I think um, the best advice I can give is run the other way because you're dealing with someone who doesn't know their own shadow <laughs> or is not right. willing to <laughs> admit no they doubt. have one. Um, you know, one of the things that's been so helpful for me in doing this podcast and talking to elders uh, who've been doing the work a lot longer than you or I is this affirmation that the work is never done, that the the trauma, the childhood experience is always going to be within us. Um, you know, that's incredibly comforting to me and also a little distressing, you know, because a part of me just wishes that at some point I'm not going to be triggered anymore. Like I had a, a yoga teacher who is important to me. Uh, he would always talk about um, if you do this practice enough, that you're going to get into a state of non-reactivity. And he would claim that uh, he had no shadow, that he was completely free of <laughs> any shadow, any like right. Ill, Ill intent or anything. Like he thought of himself as a purified being and he would sell a simple yoga practice as being the path to that uh, level of attainment. And, you know, I found out through my own dealings with him that all of that wasn't true. <laughs> of course he had a shadow, he just wasn't willing to admit it. And it got um, expressed in all kinds of distorted ways, right? Um, right? But there is this ideal out there in our culture right now and fairly prominent with certain teachers that you can get to this state of absolute peace and non-reactivity. And I think of that often as a carrot on the end of a very long stick. And that stick just keeps getting longer and longer. And so in the kind of um, pre-psychedelic renaissance spiritual world, we saw a lot of this and people just um, getting like obsessed about spiritual practice, um, jumping from one tradition to another, like looking for that silver bullet that you talked about. And I, I see the same kind of... Um, 
the same kind of patterns in the this psychedelic renaissance now where it's uh, either doing more of one medicine, so getting larger and larger cups of ayahuasca, or going to the next level with uh, particular substances. Like it starts with mushrooms, then we got to go to the next level with ayahuasca, and then we got to go to the next level with like pure DMT and all this. And um, it, it's I think it's really dangerous, but it gets perpetuated, I think, in our social media culture, where maybe the only um, thing you see about somebody's experience is this... Um, this, uh, you know, trip report where they just talked about how it's completely changed their life. And, you know, it can give you a, a kind of false impression of the real kind of effect that had on that person. And um, what we often see is that, you know, a lot of those people have some kind of like um, some burnout or a spiritual emergency down the road. Uh, but if you go from like that one report, it might give you completely unrealistic expectations of uh, what these medicines can provide. Without a doubt. Yeah, I think especially I love that you're talking about the ancestors and our elders, because an element that needs to be made is there's a lot of younger generations that don't have the emotional intelligence or the ability to articulate what they're observing mm. and translating it. They have an assigned meaning of thinking they should do that because they hear you know, a certain figurehead say they did that, so you should do that, or there's an influencer that did this, and they're encapsulating it in a very, very, very small container. And it's our job as practitioners and people helping to educate in the form of awareness, tempering expectations, harm reduction, set and setting. And I don't want to be sounding like a prudent or like this, you know, Ryan, you sound like just a double-edged sword or, you know, walking hypocrisy, but. Yeah, why is it okay day, for you to be a free explorer and all this, right? Well, exactly. But also like my perspective is, look, you can learn from my mistakes. You know, I had to um, do a lot of healing after some of those traumatic early experiences, you know? Right. Um, the memories are still there for me, really present. Like they're really tough experiences because I didn't have any education around set and setting and all that. Right. And I love what you said about that because we are humble enough to say, hey, we're just passing on what we know and take, take it with a grain of salt and leading into what is your expectation? What is your trauma? Processing it, learning to make it an understandable subject matter too, to be able to just simply talk about it is radical healing. Many people will say that to me. I've never spoken these words in my entire life. That I have to slow people down and say. That's huge. That's huge. Exactly. That is huge. Yeah. We don't need another five gram dose of mushrooms to go at it harder. Let's just sit with how powerful, courageous, and vulnerable you are in that state. Mm. And the ability to acknowledge something, to to talk about it, to be with it, uh, that is healing. Like, I don't know if there's another level to that. You know, maybe we get more and more able to uh, to be with those experiences. You know, uh, like yeah. I said, we grow larger and larger, hopefully, so that those experiences have less power over us. But they're, they're still there. And actually, one of the things I found is that those experiences never leave me. And sometimes the triggers are still there. 
depending on the situation. But because of how much I've grown over the past, you know, 46 years, I'm actually able to see a lot of those experiences, things that built my character and in some ways have become gifts because they've made me uniquely me. And I appreciate that more and more, you know, being a unique person that may not fit in everywhere and accepting that and actually kind of celebrating that. Yeah, I love it. I love that. That's so beautiful. Thanks. Um, a couple more questions, and this is uh, related to how we kind of process experience. So when someone comes to you and um, they describe an interaction with an entity, uh, you know, maybe something like, you know, you mentioned becoming a vegetarian earlier. So I, I've heard this before, you know, ayahuasca told me that I must be a vegetarian. <laughs> or that I must stop eating hamburgers or whatever it is. But there's a, I thought often of making a t-shirt, a tourist t-shirt for Iquitos that says, ayahuasca told me. <laughs> right, right. I love it. It'd be perfect. <laughs> so when someone comes to you uh, with an experience of this entity, I wonder like how you approach that. Like, do you personally consider them autonomous entities or do you think that they're projections of the unconscious? And is it important for you to uh, discern that with the with the client or yourself? To answer the question, I'm going to first establish a deep sense of rapport and seeking understanding before I try to qualify, is this an autonomous entity? Is this a projection of their unconscious or is this a manifestation of their um, non-ordinary state experience, I want to really, really connect with the person and allow them to feel unjudged. Mm -hmm. So that uh, it's, it might sound obvious, but so often people are like, they start the statement of, I just saw machine elves, or I just saw my dead grandmother's brother's sister playing out some storyline. And then they go, and I feel crazy saying it. So I have to endorse reassure and hold space of non-judgment. And I ask everybody to go, okay, I'm gonna hear this information without trying to discern or make sense of it. And oftentimes that's the person's knee-jerk reaction. They need to find what makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm completely understanding of that, Brian, and I get it. But without non-judgment and without this kind of safe space, people are gonna go, uh, I just had that experience. They won't even be able to feel safe to tell it. Is it their projections or is it? That's for them to kind of keep working into. I'm, I'm not going to try to, you know, weasel my way out of your question, but I've gone from being like the most spiritual kamikaze focused on Zen Buddhism to esoteric Hindu cultures to more Tibetan Buddhisms to Christianity to, you know, naturalists that I, I'm still curious. So I want to listen. And then I'm like, okay, well, what does it mean to you? Mm -hmm. What's it mean to you? And I think finding a semblance of their assigned meaning helps them become reassured. I am not clinically savvy enough to say, oh, 
well, the brain is telling you this, and this is what's lighting up in the cortex. But what I do know is it's true. If someone sees yeah. their dead grandmother and they're missing them and they're, and you're witnessing them weep in a three and a half hour MDMA session and they said they saw their dead grandmother, I am not going to fucking question that, nor do I deserve to pretend like I know what I'm talking about. That's theirs. And I want to reassure them that that's their truth. Mm, yeah, beautiful. I'm with you on that. And like from a personal standpoint, at this point, I'm like totally agnostic about it all because I, you know, psychologically, I can understand how these things could be a projection of my unconscious. Uh, but I've had experiences where I don't know very weird stuff happens uh, with real effects in this so-called material world. Um, so I am agnostic like you, but I guess like one of the things that I've just kind of been sitting with lately is, is wondering uh, that at certain point, um, you know, is it helpful for us to consider that these things might be a projection of our unconscious so that we can better understand uh, what's in our shadow and maybe take some ownership of the the power or the kind of like unwanted aspect of what we might be projecting onto um, like a, a goddess figure or a protector figure or a, a demonic figure. You know, at some point I think like, well, yeah, and it's something I'm just kind of wondering about and I'm, you know, I'm here with you and seeing what you think, but is yeah, I want to be so, helpful to, at some point to just uh, to kind of work with that. And and yeah, go ahead. No, I was just I'm grateful for your um, repositioning of the question, because the way you say it in that regard, there is a necessity for a clinician to support you in saying, hey, that that could be an archetype or helping psychoeducate them on. Oh, you saw an elephant with three hands and talking to you on you know a river maybe i could direct you to the ganesh maybe you could start to evoke these archetypes you know i had a client once and this was a real real concern was they had gone to a, a grateful dead concert and they came back with their skin being blue after taking lsd and i tell this story because i had to tell him his skin wasn't blue and so we had to go into what, like you said, was a projection of his unconscious. And I'm appreciative of you opening this dialogue because there are times where we have to say, no, you can feel that your skin's blue or that something happened, but we need to help support you and back to the reality of what it is. Even though he thought his hand was blue, his skin was blue. We had yep. to kind of reframe and take into consideration westernized medicine, helping him kind of find his equal rhythm. Mm. So thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, your skin's not blue. And uh, what does this archetype of uh, Vishnu mean to you or, or whatever, right? Or <laughs> exactly, right? Isn't that, I mean, and that's where we went. But yeah, I, I, or the fear, the fear around uh, like drowning or suffocation, these kind of uh, 
that's what that's the image is evoking in me. And so, yeah, yeah. I automatically start getting curious about these things and, yeah. and just to offer them up as, uh, as like inquiries with the person without saying, you know, uh, clearly this was a hallucination or. <laughs> right. Giving consent and asking for consent to kind of make observations or thoughts on it is super important. I agree with you. That's great. I love, um, I love your kind of like sensitive, uh, and careful approach with people. I really uh, appreciate that. Well, otherwise I would have been locked up 15 years ago if I didn't have that same sensitivity. It would have been like, you saw a wolf doing what? <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so, you know. I'd be next door to you, I think. <laughs> right. Treat others how you would want to be treated. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. So just to finish up, um, on the podcast, when I talk to people like you, I always like to draw out some like real practical tips that people can start to implement in their life. So, um, what are a few of the kind of essential tips or practices that you recommend to people working with psychedelics? One of the most, um, important ones I endorse with my clients is what I call a three lock approach, Brian. And that's following the intuition of unlocking your emotional, your physical body and your cognitive thoughts. And to digress into one or the other sometimes can get people stuck. So if they're only trying to integrate what they theoretically thought, and they're like, oh my gosh, and they get caught up in the cognitive distortion of thinking, 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 and not allowing in maybe an emotional response that they had in the psychedelic session, or a physical embodied sensation of tingling or peace, or I always ask them to look at all three, because maybe what they're missing is that interaction between the three and giving them information to take home. The quickest and most eloquent way to kind of lose traction in your psychedelics is if you attempt to go, okay, I got this and I know this and not look at the holistic approach of your heart, your body, and your thoughts together. Hmm. And I think that's great because that in itself is a level of integration of self. Right. And it's very intuitively driven because many people, as you are well aware of, is might have an overly processed experience cerebrally, which then they forget what it was like as they walked away from the experience in their body. Or maybe they have this resounding tinge of anxiety in their heart that they didn't listen to because it was so profoundly visual. And so I want to make sure we're not missing any of those elements. Mm. I wonder um, if it would be helpful if you could offer uh, an example of that or maybe even demonstrate with me just to give people an idea of how they might lead themselves through that process. That would be great. So how I will do it so we don't bring in any specific storyline, I would just invite someone to think of a cup of coffee. And in the morning... Our physical body is going to ask us and unlock saying, I would like a cup of coffee. Our emotional heart might say, I love a cup of coffee. And our thoughts might also be aligned to make all three unlocked by saying, I love coffee in the morning. Well, for certain people at 10 o'clock at night, I ask that very same question. Their emotions still might be aligned that they love coffee. And if they listen to it, 
and ignore their physical body and what caffeine does to them at 10 p.m., they're doing a disservice to their integrative approach. They're only listening to one of the three. And so if you eloquently then say, okay, I love coffee, I unlock it, but go into then your body and say, what will my body do at 10 p.m. drinking coffee? You'll quickly see it's locked and it will say, don't go there. I'm not ready to. Mm. What that looks like for psychedelic integration is you have to listen to what your body's pushing back against. Yeah, everybody thinks you have to lean into resistance, but you also have to know when it's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's down the road that you face that storyline. Maybe you process it verbally first. Maybe you engage in it with some experiential body exercises like breath work or yoga. Does that help with kind of conceptualizing what that looks like in the theoretical sense? Yeah, totally. I appreciate you saying that about resistance because it is kind of a meme that's out there is that we got to push up against or break through our resistance no matter what. And I really caution people because sometimes the resistance is a protective mechanism that's there for a damn good reason. So also like trusting the intelligence of your system. Yeah, right. And which leads me into another practical skill is just be conscious of being gentle. The end Mm -hmm. of my book is the last thing I say is be gentle is don't. It's there. And you said it really eloquently. Pushing up against that, it might be a defense mechanism or there for a purpose. Don't ignore your intentions. Don't ignore your intuition and listen to and don't think you need to go at it going 150 miles an hour. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a beautiful note to end it on. Go gently, you know, be uh, courageous in your exploration of yourself in the world, but, uh, but go gently and carefully and hopefully with, um, with a good, um, caring, thoughtful guide as well. Highly important is being safe with the people and knowing that they have, their um, education, their experience, their trust in you. Relations are super important. I think specifically now more than ever, if you don't feel safe or have that energetic flow with somebody that tells you, should you be doing it? Or is this an appropriate time? Because there could be so much at stake emotionally, physically, psychologically. So. Mm. I appreciate this time today. It's really a beautiful conversation. I love your work. Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm really um, happy with how it went. You know, I think uh, we, we we drew out some good stuff. Um, now, if I know that you're doing a, some different things, you're doing some work on Zoom. Uh, you've got this this handbook, which is just to let people know. I think like the way that I uh, perceive it, it's a very comprehensive overview of everything that could be involved in your own individual integration process. And it seemed like you wanted to introduce people to a lot of different uh, concepts and practices and approaches. Is that correct? 
That's accurate. So the design and the the makeup of it is both giving um, educational background of a lot of the information, both historically that psychedelics brings, but um, as you eloquently do in your podcast is bringing it back to skill base too and giving some action. So I designed the book intentionally to have a white notebook. You can get it dirty, drawn it, make it a journal. There's integrative exercises at the end of each chapter. So you could process and it's not designed to read just once but as an evolutionary of your process and um, not because I'm sadistic but because I'm curious I ended it with death so I really find the the transformation the mystery of the next journey as an opportunity that psychedelics really helps present for us so there's an opportunity to really make it your own. Maybe you don't read the book all straight through. You pick a chapter and it really resonates. And that's the intention. Yeah, that's great. And and that it is uh, so um, the kind of comprehensive. Um, different things in the book might resonate with people at different times in along their journey. So you may look at it a couple of years from now and go, ooh, actually that practice seems like it's the right thing for me now. So I think it's just great that you guys um, did the work of creating a very uh, robust and comprehensive handbook that uh, provides um, a very kind of like broad overview rather than, you know, your personal opinion of what works best, which was my book. That's why it's only 112 pages, because it's very much about integrating yoga with uh, plant medicines and psychedelics. Oh, so beautiful, though, and deeply necessary. I think um, at the end of the day, everybody makes it their own. And that's what I want to keep really advocating for. And it seems very important to be able to bring those two together. Yeah, great. So are you doing any online workshops or anything around this? Yep. So thank you for asking. I'm doing um, three things right now. I'm doing um, dream work as a psychedelic integration process. So mm, much. Perfect. I created a little bit of a dream work um, experiential group exercise that has translated quite well online. And then I also am doing a digital detoxing group as it relates to psychedelic integration. And the reason I'm doing that is as you know, is um, my book isn't digital. It's a robust book of five pounds. And I intentionally did that because I have a unique relationship with digital world. And so I want people to kind of come into contact with what is a lived experience of psychedelic integration and evoking that. So those are two workshops right now. And another one that I do is a classic representation of that 12 chapter book where each chapter is designated per week and we evoke a really intentional focus on that chapter. Oh, that's great. So it's almost like a, a study group for the handbook. Yeah, accurate. Very accurate. Yep. Well, study handbook, but also, like you said, experiential, because I'm guessing that you go into the different exercises that you present in the book. A hundred percent. And the idea behind it is then they can take it and actually see it as we talked about in today's conversation manifested in the real world, where really my motivation is bring it into practicality. What does it mean to you and how can you do it? So if you're doing a mandala drawing or if you're doing a yoga practice or if you're doing your obituary, then you're recognizing, wow, I learned something and I saw the interwoven nature of it as it relates to psychedelics or their experience. Yeah. 
Great. So if people want to find out about all of this, where can they go? Thank you. Um, my website is healing souls, S O U L S L L C.com healing souls, LLC.com or psychedelic integration.net. And I have two websites and they both kind of confluence back into who I'm, I am and what I'm doing. Many of the conversations are very open. I have a forum on the Healing Souls website that gives people kind of an interaction of what I'm doing with blogs, comments, and inviting in that kind of workshop and communal tribe that we're creating. That sounds great. Thanks so much for spending time with us today and, and sharing your perspective. I, I really appreciate it. And I feel a lot of resonance with you personally. So it just feels good on a personal note, nourishing for me. Yeah. And particularly because we live in such an isolated time that it means the world to me. And I'm deeply humbled by the invitation. And again, um, would love to talk at any level about this. It never gets old and it really keeps bringing more and more to the table. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, maybe we've got a conversation down the road about sex because it's one of my favorite topics that I haven't covered too much on the podcast. <laughs> would be honored, would be honored. Brian, it's a privilege. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. You too. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by purchasing one of my yoga video courses or books. You can find links to everything at brianjames.ca forward slash resources. Thanks so much for your support. Without listeners like you, independent creators like me couldn't do what we do. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine upon your face until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.